Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Ben Frain. Ben is based in Cheshire, England, and is a senior front-end developer at Bet365, one of the world's leading online gambling sites with over 90 million customers. Ben has previously published two books with Pact Publishing, Responsive Web Design with HTML5 and CSS3, and SAS and Compass for Designers. He has spoken about web development at a number of events and on various industry podcasts. In a previous life, Ben was a TV actor and technology journalist, and he has an ongoing interest in writing screenplays. He blogs about CSS web development and other tech subjects at benfrain.com, and you can follow him at benfrain on Twitter. Ben is the author of the LeanPub book, Enduring CSS Architect, and uh, Maintain Large-Scale CSS Codebases, and we'll be talking about his book a little bit later. Um, in this interview, we're also going to talk about Ben's professional interests, uh, his end in the at the very end, his experience using LeanPub and, and why he chose it to self-publish his book. So thank you, Ben, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, as, as I think you know, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, and I know from an interview I read about you that in your case, the path to where you are now is perhaps a little more circuitous than it is for most people. <laughs> and um, yeah. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how you came to where you are in your career. Yeah, okay. Well, obviously, I'm primarily a, a software developer now. And uh, the closest I got to software development in my uh, younger years was when we had a, a BBC Model B um, computer when I was a young boy. And we used to get um, computer magazines here in the UK. I don't know if you had them in the States. And they contain a, a program which you could basically spend four or five days of your life typing out and then hit go. And, and they never worked. So that was <laughs> that was sort of my uh, initial foray into programming. Um, I basically started my career, I always wanted to be a, a film director. So from sort of young teens, that was sort of where my head was. So I um, did film directing at, at university um, and tried desperately to sort of get into that career, which where I sort of live in the UK isn't exactly a hotbed for the film industry. Um, but off the back of doing that at, at university, I um, used to do a lot of acting as well. Um, got offered to an agent, basically took me on for the acting. And so I, I followed that path for a short time and did um, about five years of TV acting here in the UK, none of which um, set, set the silver screen alight, but um, sort of soaps that are well-known over here, like Coronation Street and the like. I was in that a couple of times. So the, the frustration with that uh, sort of career was that I was imagining myself getting alongside Bobby De Niro and I was actually getting sort of 10 lines on a not so great soap opera. And so my idea of where I wanted to be in reality weren't measuring up. And so I'd got to a point where I'd got involved. Um, I'd started to write my own stuff and I'd written a, a screenplay and I wanted to try and get that off the ground. So I'd done short films before, which at the same time we're doing the short films was when I started to it sort of tallied in with the beginnings of, of web design. This was about sort of, 98 something like that 99 and so like a lot of people do websites for the band my first sort of website was one for a short film that I'd made and so these two sort of lives started to develop one where I was furthering my web development skills um, and the other one was where I was trying to get this sort of film career um, going and the reality was that on a, a long enough timeline <laughs> what I wanted to do didn't pan out and what I never planned on doing did so um that's kind of where I ended up. And so I tried to get films off the ground myself, tried to get them financed. It was, it was very tough and I basically failed. And so 
at the same time that I was I was then sort of into more writing screenplays and that made no money but at the same time I was writing for technology magazines here in the UK and, and abroad so that was kind of where I was making my money at the same time so yeah I was making my money making websites for other people and writing for magazines and then actually trying to get these screenplays off the ground and never saw the light of day so um, eventually you know my sort of it just came to the point where I was so much better at the web development. So, you know, that was taking off. That's kind of the path that I followed. Um, yeah, so that kind of brings us up to about uh, 2011, something like that. Um, so I'd been doing uh, web development freelance for quite some time and then decided to try my hand at a book. So I did a couple of books with packed publishing, which I, I've, I've always enjoyed the writing process because I, I feel like I probably learn as much by writing something for other people as I do, you know, just trying to learn for myself. Um, there were there was good things about writing for a publisher and there, were, there was lots of bad things. And I know we'll, we'll sort of get to the, the bad things later on maybe. Um, but that kind of gives you the York Note versions of <laughs> my torrid career path, I guess. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks very much. Um, I, I have a question actually about uh, specifically about the process of getting a screenplay funded. Um, you know, maybe like some other listeners, I've, I've written a couple myself uh, as totally amateurishly um, and entered them in, you know, screenplay contests or passed them around to friends. But okay. I was wondering, um, you know, when, when you say, you know, you tried to tried to get them off the ground, what what does that mean? Does that mean approaching producers that you've been introduced to or trying to get introductions to people with money who are interested in producing a film? It, it was a bit of both. So I'd managed to, like I say, I'd done a bit of um, screenwriting and I managed to get a literary agent as well off the back of that. So much like my acting ideals didn't match up with the reality of what agents wanted me to do. It was the same case with the screenwriting. They wanted me to be sort of writing episodes of soap operas and I wanted to be writing blockbuster films. Um but throughout the course of the sort of, you know, different people that I knew in the industry from, from doing what I did for some time, um, yeah, it, it was basically any any producers that you could, um, you know, that would let you bend their ear. Um, and it was there, was, there was production companies as well that sort of, you probably had a very similar experience. You get a lot of sort of um, responses from people that sound quite promising, but ultimately end up in nothing. And so... I think when you're in the beginning of that journey, you, f you always feel like you're on the cusp of something happening. Um, and for me, at least, it, it never actually did. And so I got I got better at recognising those situations. But the one that I was going to try and make myself, what I, I planned to do, was find a thousand people to each put in a thousand pounds, and so everyone would have like an equal share in this sort of million pound low budget uh, film. But I just didn't anticipate. Um, what a skill producing is, you know, and, and how difficult it is to actually go out and, and get money out of people. Um, and it was basically something that I never considered that, that would be the difficult bit. So I spent all the time, you know, on the script and the director and the cinematography and storyboarding and all that sort of stuff. And I just sort of thought, well, of course people would want to put in a thousand pounds to to be part of a film. You know, I just thought that would be a given and, and, and nobody did. <laughs> so, so it didn't pan out that well. Yeah, it's um, that's really interesting. It sounds like um, you know, having a having a screenplay and trying to get it produced is a little bit like uh, being a startup and approaching venture capitalists. Uh, yeah, al almost none of whom will ever give you an outright no. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and, and certainly, yeah. and certainly, um, unless you know you're you're a total, uh, you know, basket case, they'll 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 want to maintain positive relationships with you 
uh, and with everyone they meet in case something pans out. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, that's interesting that the sort of crowdfunding model that you're describing, um, have you ever thought about using Kickstarter or something like that? Well, there was a thing a while back, sort of when I was last sort of seriously dabbling in it called Trigger Street, which I don't know is still going. I think it was something that Kevin Spacey had set up. Um, and that was quite interesting because that was, you, you put your screenplay in and it was kind of voted on by other members of the site and the highest ones each month got put before a panel. And so things like that are potentially, I, I think the, the truth of the matter is, Len, at this point I've kind of, I've moved past it mentally. So I've got two young young um, sons now and I think that the one remaining thing that I'd like to do for them is to try and write um, a novel for them as I get, you know, in, in a few years time. Um, my, um, my, my belief in that I could get one of these screenplays sold is, is sort of fading with every day, sadly. <laughs> oh, no. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it sounds like quite an, quite an adventure though. And definitely, I think, you know, we, we should all live our lives aiming, aiming for what uh, we most desire. Um, I was interesting speaking of moving on, um, you've written about, um, the change, or at least there was an interview I read online about changing from being kind of a lone wolf working for yourself to being an employee for a company. And yeah. I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about how that affected you and how you've, what you've lost and what you've gained. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, like I say, for, for about 10 years, I worked, you know, just for myself, um, freelance here, essentially like a sole worker. And that was all absolutely fine. Um, I enjoyed, I think that the rub of that is that what you actually like doing is, is just one portion of your day to day. Obviously you've got to, you've got to chase um, jobs coming in, you've got to chase payment and all that sort of stuff. Generally people in, in the freelance trade don't like particularly. Um, and I certainly didn't either. Um, the good parts about freelancing is obviously you can, once you organize yourself and you, you know how to put structure into your day, there's a leeway that if at four o'clock one day you you know you just know that your brain's not working very well, you can go out and get a cup of coffee or whatever. So that sort of feeling of well being like you imagine an adult to be, where you can you know you're in charge of your own destiny day to day. That that's what's really nice about it. Um, but the the flip side of I was approached to um, join Bet Three Six Five. Um, by it was like a, a recruitment agency in the UK, and when you're a, a freelancer doing sort of publicish work on the web, recruiters are contacting you quite a lot of the time, and so that was no surprise. Um, but the the thing that they described to me was quite interesting, and it, it was fairly close to where I live. And they didn't say specifically who it was at the time, but they said it was a large company. And there's only two really big companies um, near to where I live, one of which is Bet365, and the other one is JCB, who's uh, the ones who, you know what, you've got Caterpillars there in the US, the, the big monster trucks, or Canada, um, are you Canada or... US yeah, yeah, I'm based in Canada. I'm, uh, I, I describe it. I live on a Canadian island in the Pacific Ocean. Um, that sounds pretty good. It's called Vancouver Island, yeah. Oh, yeah, Vancouver, yeah. yeah. I'm not a complete hillbilly. I didn't know where Vancouver is. <laughs> yeah, um, no so, um, yeah, so, so it wasn't JCB because I'd already been in, and spoken to them, so it turned out to be about 365. Anyway, so I, um, I joined them with fully believing that I would be there maybe a couple of weeks and, and somebody telling me what to do every day would very quickly wear thin. Um, but it turns out it was, um, there's a set, there's a, a quote that I'd heard from somebody and they said, people, people don't lose, jo uh, don't leave jobs. They leave bosses. Um, and I always think that's quite interesting because 
the guy who who took me on and is, is still my sort of um, my boss is just a really good guy, and I get on with him very well, and I enjoy working with him. Um, and I think that sort of thing is the is the part of working for a company that I. I'd missed but didn't realise I missed. So I'm working with like two or three people pretty closely every day. And I enjoy, I suppose it must be like people who are in a band and being able to sort of bounce ideas off people, which is what you miss when you're working for yourself and what you really gain when you sat face to face with somebody. Um, And that's not to say you have to be doing that all the time. But it's nice if you're doing anything sort of creative to be able to stop and go, you know, sit around a table and put some sketches down and go, this is what we're thinking of doing, you know, and being able to bash that stuff back and forth is the stuff that I actually enjoy doing the most. I suppose it's probably the the closest to the creative side of things that, you know, you'll have done in terms of like screenwriting and that sort of stuff. You know, it's that's the sort of the real buzz of it is you, when the ideas bounce back and forth and you come up with something that you, you not no one person would have come up all by themselves. Speaking about buzz, um, I'm not sure if, if, if everyone listening um, to the podcast knows this, but in England, it's um, more or less legal to bet on anything. I think I'm, I'm correct about that. <laughs> yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually lived over there for nine years, and I'm you know, familiar with the site of the odds makers and things like that. Um, and uh, I was wondering if there is any um, special buzz around working for, for a betting company. I mean, is there a, an extra kind of pressure or, or um, constraint? No, I mean, I think it's more, I mean, the funny thing is I, I was never um, somebody who ever bet on anything. Um, I was never brought up with, with betting in our, our family at all. Um, that's not to say that, you know, people in my family don't, but I can remember distinctly thinking, I don't know if I'm sort of comfortable, um, like with a, a, a betting company, it felt sort of slightly weird to me, almost like a tobacco company or something like that. Um, but the reality is that, yeah, it, it's very much a, a cultural thing and, um, yeah, it's just not a big deal here. You know, it's not considered weird in any way, you know, and it's sort of normal day to day, I suppose, in much the same respect as people would go out and, and have a drink in a bar and, and 99% of people are absolutely fine. You occasionally get people, you know, that, that, that don't respond well, you know, and you get alcoholism and all that sort of stuff. And by the same token, you get the odd um, people in terms of gambling that, that go the same way, you know, and they get addicted to it. So, it's a really sort of um, difficult subject, I guess, to sort of really feel out the edges of. But um, in terms of what I do day to day, which is like sort of build the interfaces for these things, there are very few um, applications, if you want to call them that, on the web, which are by necessity as complicated as a, um, a betting application needs to be. So that does presents some unique challenges which are pretty exciting for what I do to try and solve, you know, to try and figure out an, an architect and all the rest of it. And so from my point of view, <laughs> it's a good thing, you know, because other than that, I'd be doing the same sort of brochure sites and magazine sites and all that sort of stuff that are, are much more common. Yeah, it sounds it sounds pretty, it just sounds exciting to me. I mean, I've met, I met um, a couple of people who worked uh doing the odds um you know and and you know it could be literally anything right like when will charles and camilla get divorced oh yeah like (laughs) yeah and and the idea of just putting odds on that and the kind of you know the the i just imagine that the sort of user's interaction with something like that um uh must be kind of particularly um tense 
Yeah, I mean, it, the, the thing I'm most involved in is called the sports book, which is um, it's betting on live sporting events or you know sporting events um, around the world, and it just it was unbelievable to me when I got there and sort of saw the scale of what they do. I mean, as an example, like right now, you you might go onto the site and there's maybe 18 live um, soccer games happening right now. And we, we let you choose any one of those games and we'll either have a live video feed of that event happening right now or we'll give you a an animated, interactive, um, kind of like computer version of it showing you what's happening right now as well. So at all these events around the world, there's, there's guys and girls like feeding back exactly what's happening at this game at this point in time. And based upon that, the, the odds are updating, you know, which let, lets users um, choose which opportunities they want to bet on second to second. And like I say, that's the sort of, it's the level and scale of interactivity that you, you just really can't find in many other areas. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it right now, actually. I mean, it looks really good. Um, uh, I see there are esports as well. Is that, are you a part of that? Yeah, all, all that sort of stuff. Like if you go to, mo- uh, primarily, if you go to mobile.bet365.com, something like that on your phone, um, what you see there um, is the sort of stuff that our team um prototypes builds up and then we you know we have another team of devs as well that, that take it and and mesh it in with all the live data and all the rest of it so and there's you know we're just constantly putting new things in there just when you think right we thought of everything you know there's, there's a whole another whole set of features we want to add in so it certainly moves very quickly it's a, it's a competitive um market to be in and so yeah it's it's it, gets me out of bed every day, you know, which is good. If it keeps your brain challenged and keeps you solving problems, that generally makes me quite happy. Yeah, it's a really fascinating industry. Um, and I was wondering, I, I kind of have to ask the obligatory Brexit question, um, but I guess it's kind of a reverse Brexit question, which is, as far as you know, did did the EU ever try to put limitations on the sort of cult- British cultural uh, practice of betting? Well, funnily enough, it's pretty um, across the whole of Europe. Um, bet you know there isn't really anywhere that that doesn't allow betting. Um, I think, if anything, sort of America and Canada is kind of unique. China tries to say it doesn't allow betting, but <laughs> China's obviously a massive culturally um, culturally. China's always been massively into to gambling and betting and and all that sort of stuff. Um, so. <clears throat> There's actually quite few places around the world that, that don't do betting as standard. There's occasionally um, bits of legislation that are particular to different areas, like Italy has a certain set of um, specific requirements for in-play bets and things like that. But but by and large, um, they're all at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that, that just speaks to my own limitations. I mean, having spent so much time in Britain and, yeah, seeing, seeing odds makers everywhere, but when I would travel in Europe, I guess I just probably didn't didn't notice um uh that that was a practice elsewhere as well um uh i've one i guess one more question and again it's about the switch from um working uh on your own to working for a company i made this switch about a year ago from working remotely to working in an office and um uh, you've written about how much you enjoy being able to set up your own physical environment and how sometimes there are things that you can't do uh in an office that you might be able to get away with doing at home. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering if there's there's one or two things you'd like to sort of pro tips you can give for setting up a physical environment, things that you've you've thought about and found solutions for. 
Um, I guess the main thing is to try and get people to understand your whims, particularly if you've if you've worked for yourself for a long period of time. You you know how to have things the way that you want them, and so I mean, I've got to be honest. There isn't many things that I've wanted at my current place of work that they haven't accommodated in some way. <clears throat> so it's more just ensuring that you know if if you've got a. I suppose the key difference for me is if if I was working for a company. And it was a crummy, horrible monitor I had to sit in front of. And they weren't prepared to buy a new, better monitor. I would quite happily buy my own monitor and bring it in if they would allow me to. Because I'd rather do that and have a nice working environment than I would use crummy tools. You know, because you, you sit in front of these things every day and that's how you ply your craft. Obviously, the um, <clears throat> whether they should or they shouldn't buy something better for you is a, is a different question. But... I'd rather um, just buy the things that I want to use to do my job and accept that as a sort of part of my professional outgoings, if you like. Um, you know, when I think about people in other trades and what they have to pay for the tools that they need, um, you know, the sort of stuff, like the, the absolute creme de la creme of kit, you can get, you know, top-of-the-line MacBook Pro for a few thousand dollars, massive cinema displays, same sort of money, in the scheme of things, compared to other um, professions, it's not a great deal of money. Uh, that's uh, that's very true. I mean, it also sounds sounds like um, in an environment where, you know, one is getting recruitment calls all the time. I imagine there's a bit of an incentive on the part of companies to to um, accommodate a programmer's needs. Um, one of the things at, at LeanPub that we really like to provide is actually um, this. Just reminds me is um, really nice noise canceling headphones. Yeah. Um, uh, so the programmer can just go into their zone and stay in their world. And, and sort of the one of the interesting sort of things about it is that putting on the headphones is code for leave me alone. Leave me alone. <laughs> I'm in the zone. Um, yeah. I've built my stack in my head and like, let's let's uh, you know be productive now. Um, yeah. Your book, um, just switching topics, your book Enduring CSS um, is about a method, I suppose you could call it, um, you've developed for organizing and doing CSS architecture on uh, big projects. And I was wondering yeah. if you could explain a little bit about uh, how you came to develop the approach and what the approach is. Yeah, okay. So um, obviously CSS and HTML has been the sort of core of what I've done over the years. So I've, whilst I've dabbled, dabbled in other technologies, sort of the basics of the, the three sort of tiers of the front end stack being JavaScript, CSS, and HTML, I've, I've sort of specialised in the, the CSS, particularly in the HTML. Um, and what happens when you move to something of, of size and something with a lot of people that are all working on that code base? Um, I guess that historically, you're always told to lean on the cascade in, in CSS. So you make, <clears throat> you make some styles and you inherit from those styles as much as you can. You try and write as little CSS as you can. Um, and therefore, when you... You want to you make a pattern of things for your site, and when you want to change something across the whole site, the, the thought being that you go back to that one thing that everything inherits from, and you make those changes, which is all well and good. But what what I found once I started on um, these sizable projects with many many different visual components, you know, it wasn't just a, a brochure site, was that often these things that started life looking quite similar often needed to um, sort of transgress as time went on, you know, and develop their own life and identity 
um, and it was actually a, a major inconvenience to have to, you, you would make a change to one thing and it would end up inadvertently changing something somewhere else, <coughs> which is on something of scale is really, really problematic because you, you need to be quite confident when you're committing into a large code base that the changes you make are going to make just those changes. You know, they're not going to start um, visually changing things in other areas. And so the sort of the core principle, and there's been a few sort of methodologies over the years, like um, BEM is one, uh, which is block element and modifier, and then there's been things like OOCSS. So the the two sort of main um, ways of approaching CSS at scale are you either go for a kind of atomic approach, um, which is sort of categorized by atomic CSS, where you make a little class for every single permutation of CSS. And so at some point, your CSS can't get any bigger. But the downside of that is that you have to write, you know, 10 or 20 classes on every single node in the DOM to get it to appear the way that you want. So that's one approach. The benefit being that your CSS stays quite small. The, the flip side of that is you try and contain, <coughs> excuse me, um, styles. And so by doing that, you you put one particular class on each node in the DOM, and then every single thing that's needed to isolate and contain and render that thing perfectly is put on that class. So you're going to get a, lot, a little bit more repetition, maybe a lot more repetition, because you're going to be declaring things like the display type, the colors, background colors, lots and lots. But things like gzip, when it's all smashed together nullify a great deal of that. And so <coughs> the ECSS methodology is based around the idea of isolation and containment. So the principle being that you can, by isolating these things with a namespace and various other characteristics, these um, there's no danger of styles leaking out from one component into another. Okay, great. Um, you you actually you also talk about um, style sheet entropy. Um, I was wondering, is that something in what you when what you just described, or is that it's something something else? It just sounds like a really interesting idea. I suppose. I mean, I'm unsure of the exact context of um, where I've said that. It sounds like the sort of, sort of thing I would say. Certainly. <laughs> I mean, it's. I suppose it's kind of the, the place where I came um, to look at the styles on a big site, if you like, is whereby over months and years, people have been working on a CSS code base. It grows because nobody has the confidence. It's back to that thing I was saying before, of people are too afraid to make changes to existing CSS because they don't know what it's going to affect. Nobody seems to know what changing a class <coughs> 200 lines above is actually going to do. And so they don't do that. And they use a very specific selector and they write some more CSS. And so you end up in this situation where the CSS only ever grows because nobody has the confidence to, to fully understand what the existing code is doing. And that's kind of what I'm talking about. Um, so when, once you develop a very clear um, set of guidelines and principles for how you're going to architect this stuff, it becomes very simple and manageable to deal with those styles, update them, remove them, knowing full well you're not going to destroy everything.
Right. So I, I imagine the the target audience the, the target audience for your book is people who um, are either on uh, large scale projects that have suffered from this kind of entropy or people who are scaling up and who want, might want to adopt a sort of best practice before they before they proceed. Absolutely. And I think with all these things, there's there's trade offs. You know, you've there's no right way to do anything. There's just a set of problems and a solution that fits those problems. And so I'm quite clear and quite vocal about saying you before you do anything, you need to understand the problems you actually have. Don't go and pick a methodology, whether it's mine or anybody else's and just think, well, that sounds pretty good and slapping that into your situation because you need to know what your situation is. You need to know exactly what the problems are that you're trying to solve before you try and fit something to them. And so <clears throat> for me, obviously, it's a methodology that works perfectly for what I do. But people need to understand the problems they're solving before they try and apply stuff. That's my sort of um, take, I guess. Yeah, it's really interesting. You've got a section where you talk about what you've got a section where you talk about. Um, and forgive me if I pronounce this wrongly, but um, Pin Sing Do. Uh, yeah, which trans, which you say translates roughly as the way of pragmatic coding, and it means more or less solving the problems you actually have. But you immediately then go on to say, "But the problems you have might not be the problems I have." Um, and this sort of, you know, they're they're even, as pragmatic as one individual might be. There's still the sort of with the problem before them. There's the sort of combined problem of collaborating. Um, yeah, I think as well, it's a sort of. It's a bit of a bugbear of mine, but that, that we tend to be a bit like lemmings in web development, and we just kind of follow what somebody decides is the next hot thing, without sort of actually stopping and deciding if it's the right thing for us. And so um, that's sort of part of what the whole ping sing do thing is about: is about having the confidence and developing the con- confidence to to know what si- suits your particular circumstances and knowing what things to concentrate on. And some of that takes time, but some of it also requires conscious effort to do that, I think, and, and not just get carried away on the latest hot technology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, on the subject of uh, writing and creativity and publishing, um, I wanted to ask you, um, so you've, you've uh, written previously two books for what we might call a conventional publisher, um, and you decided to switch to self-publishing. And I was before I ask you specifically about LeanPub, I was wondering if you would like to talk a little bit about why you decided to make that switch, at, at least for this this book. Yeah, okay. So the things that are good about a traditional publisher is obviously that they're going to do, um, the, you know, the, they've got the, the scope and the, the avenues to get your book out in all the right places, which if you've never written books before, there's some advantage to doing that. The disadvantages are I take a massive chunk of your royalty um, you have to use horrible tools generally to to write the books. You know, you, you're working in Word templates and the like, and you're also stuck to a contract, which means you've got to do stuff to a certain timeline, um, you know, to certain conventions, and all that sort of stuff. Um, that can be a good and a bad thing. In in fairness, I don't think I would have written my first book if I hadn't have signed a contract because that motivated me to write it. Sometimes. Not having, um, you know, the things that you've got to hit means that you never actually end up doing anything. And so having something in place is good. But I think once you, for me, it was perfect to move to, to Lean Pub because having done that a couple of times, 
I sort of understood how to structure stuff and, and get stuff done, whilst at the same time I could move more quickly into my own pace because I didn't have a contract to worry about. And that, oh, that's the other big thing that's a real annoyance with typical published books is no matter how sort of fastidious you are with the detail, once that thing is published and you find those little four or five things which are wrong or need fixing or are slightly out, you're done, you know. <laughs> They're going to stay there and irritate you and everybody else forever. And so that's really frustrating. And what's lovely about LeanPub is a reader can email me and have done, um, you know, and within 10 minutes I can have the revised version up and live for people to re-download. And that's a lovely thing. That feels like how it should be in this day and age. Yeah, well, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, I have the same sort of attitude towards, you know, seeing a mistake and wanting to, wanting to fix it, um, it's, especially if you believe that it ought to be technically possible. Um, uh, I was wondering, and so did I imagine you, you made a comment about Word, and so I imagine that you, you wrote your book in, in plain text using our sort of LeanPub flavored markdown syntax? Yeah, I, I use Sublime text data you know that that's where i spend like 95 percent of my working day is writing code so it's very easy for me to just flick open a new tab put it in markdown syntax and and away i go and so that's generally how i write start writing anything that i write is starts out as markdown whether it's a blog post or um a book or, or anything really a bit of documentation that i'm writing for work and so it just suited me perfectly because that's sort of the way my mind works. Um, and the only time I, I got, well, not even frustrated because it was kind of a, a thing above and beyond, but I wanted to have a, an online version of the web, sorry, an online version of the book as well um, at ecss.io. And what I wanted to try and do is use that same markdown text to generate the HTML so that I only ever had to update in one place. And there's just a couple of things which, um, I wanted to be able to do in terms of like putting classes on things, which I couldn't do in the the markdown once it had run through the you know the converter. These are sort of minor things. Maybe I'll bug you about another time. <laughs> uh, well, actually, um, uh, at the end, uh, the last question I always ask people is what what can we do for you that uh, that we haven't done, or um, uh, what can we fix that that was broken? So we'll get to that in a few minutes, I think. Yeah, um, but, but sure. I, I mean. But by and large, I mean, it's just been incredible because I've been able to put it, put the book up on LeanPub and obviously I think I started it off saying it was like 70% complete or something like that. So I kept chipping away at it until I got, got it to a point that I was, I was happy with. And then once it had run on LeanPub in a sort of finished state for a while, it's easy to then go and stick it on Amazon or stick it on iBookstore, um, you know, with... Like literally within an hour, you can have generated the right files and the right stuff that they need to get it out there. And it's just incredibly liberating um, when you're used to dealing with the sort of the massive machinery of a big publisher. Yeah, I was going. To, I was going. To, that was actually going to be my next question. Was um, did you did you publish it in progress? And that sort of related to a switching from working for a traditional publisher to self-publishing is the um, issue of motivation and and you know timing and stuff like that and some i know some self up a lot of self-published authors talk about how they like the freedom but sometimes you can miss the pressure because it helps you get motivated to finish but one thing we've tried to do is sort of replace that with the concept of in progress publishing so you publish something that's 70 percent finished and then you maybe start getting readers before you're done and then 
the fact that you have readers and that your book is out there provides you with some motivation to definitely it, it, it definitely did for me Len, because I, <clears throat> I got a sort of weird thing where it only had to be one person buying that book at the 70 percent stage and i kind of felt a um a debt of honor if you like you know to finish that thing for that person and so the, the more people that buy it along the way obviously just adds the weight and they become like the contract if you like well, well that's certainly the way it felt to me um yeah, I've got I've got a question about I I know your book is on Amazon as well as available on the Lean Pub bookstore um and for all kinds of reasons that I can see that the pricing is different I mean one is that Lean Pub has variable pricing you can set so you can set a minimum and a suggested price and people can choose to pay anything above the minimum including above the suggested price but on Amazon your book is set at 9.99 um I imagine that's partly because Amazon starts to punish you if you make exactly. a book worth more than nine ninety nine, and yeah, I was wondering if you could maybe explain a little bit about what that, what that's like for you as an author to have your book available in two different places for. Different yeah, I mean, the, the reality is it probably won't be on Amazon for much longer because it only went on about ten days ago, and I didn't really realize at the time that 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 would be the case, and it's incredibly frustrating because obviously they take a, a massive chunk of the money anyway, that they kind of strong arm you into setting it at a certain price yeah they, yeah the, go on sorry oh sorry i was just going to say as i understand it which i mean there there are all sorts of complications to their to amazon's royalty structure but one of the main divisions is that you can earn up to i think a 70 percent royalty on a sale if your book is worth 990 up to 999 but after right. 999 it goes down to 30 percent um and so if you price price a book at $11, you can make less money than you would if you priced it at $9.99. Exactly, yeah. And this is a particular issue for people who are writing um, technical books um, or books that books that have an inherent a, a higher inherent value, perhaps that you might say to the to the reader than um, other types of books. Because if you're you know if you're it's for your if it's for your work for your career um, to solve a problem that can you know, make an, an entire organization more efficient, then, you know, that book might be worth a $1,000, um, you know, not, not $9.99. Um, and, uh, and Amazon is inherently kind of structured to not be friendly to books of that kind. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like I say, it, it's something that I wanted to get it on there for an experiment to see how it, it'd do, um, you know, to see whether it would sell substantially more units um, that way. But like I say, it's, it's been on there about 10 days and, it's not sold any more than have on Lean Pub, and obviously it's a much more frustrating process. Whether in time, once there's reviews and stuff like that, um, whether that makes a difference, I'd be keen to know. But that's sort of a, something I'm saving up to talk to you about. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, well, why do, I mean, um, I guess before I've just got one more question before we jump to that. Um, okay. Uh, which is, uh, you've mentioned making corrections, um, and you've published in progress, and I was wondering. Is engaging with readers something that's uh, been Im important to you um, throughout this process? It is, and I think definitely when, if you're the subject of this book particularly, because it's not like a simple um, do these things and there's the answer and it can only be one answer. It is the sort of book where if you're a CSS developer, you're starting down this road, you're going to have a lot of questions even after um, writing that book. And so being able to have back and forth with people and, uh, and uh, 
yeah, that sort of thing. You, you basically kind of have to meet people on whatever medium they want to do. So <clears throat> whether you ask for it or not, some people are going to email you, some people are going to reach out to you on Twitter, um, some people are going to put an, you know a comment on the the site's page. So you just kind of try and have to be as vigilant as you can to to meet people wherever they are. I think. Yeah, yeah, no, that's approach that an approach that a lot of people take, um, uh, and it's one of the reasons that we you know produce output in PDF, EPUB, and Mobi um, so that people can uh, put their books up for sale on other places and try that out if that's uh, something that they want to do. Um, and the, I think the other thing I would say as well that I, I found incredible was the, the variable pricing. I remember seeing that and thinking, well, that's ridiculous. Nobody's ever going to um, pay more. Um, and all the time people do, and bless them for doing it, because it's just lovely, you know, because people, like literally I'd say every one in three um, is probably somebody who puts a little bit more than you've even asked for. Um, and from an author's point of view, that's obviously fantastic. Um, I never would have imagined that in a million years. Yeah, we also get people who um, have bought a book and then read it and then approach us saying, hey, can I, can I now pay more? Um, uh, so they'll, they'll, which is essentially an, a kind of tip afterwards yeah. um, because since people can choose, it creates a very, in, in my, I have a strong opinion about this, but it creates a very different relationship, commercial relationship between the customer and the thing they've bought and the person or people who produced the thing um, because it introduces choice on their part about what to do and a choice on their part about value. Um, and that can change. That can be different from what yours is as an author and it can actually change after they've had an experience reading the book. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, it, it, I don't care however famous people are, the, the, it's always nice to get an email from somebody saying like, thanks for that, good job, or really enjoyed it, or whatever. That, it makes your day. And so, um, yeah, it, that, anything that sort of makes that easier to do, it's fantastic to sort of open that dialogue with people. Well, that gives me an interesting idea about some, a feature we obviously could add to our tip jar um, which when we do eventually develop it, which will be sort of, you know, sending a happy message to the author. Um, it's something we probably would have done anyway, but it, you just made me think about what a good feature that will be. Um, so moving, moving on to, I guess the, the, the final part, um, of the podcast, uh, what is it that, uh, we can do for you that we haven't done that you think would be a good addition to the process? I think just reviews are the main thing for me. I, I know so many people that when they look at something, you know, particularly books without any kind of testimonials and, and reviews of the book, um, it just makes it more likely to sort of go away and have a think about it. And I think that's the only thing I'm sure you must have thought about it a hundred times. Um, yeah, we have, we have thought about it. Um, you know, Amazon made online reviews famous um, quite some time ago now. Um, uh, you know, the only reason they don't exist yet on LeanPub is because we we're a small team and we're bootstrapped yeah. and there's just always an endless number of things to do. Um, uh, but definitely reviews and, and more broadly, um, reader, author, and reader, reader interaction is a big part of Lean, LeanPub's future and doing more work around that. Currently, the substitutes for reviews are, yeah, they're um, uh, the reader testimonials that authors can add, which are obviously all going to be positive, um, but it's, it puts a face and a name to a claim about the book, which is a positive thing. And, um, and we also make it possible for people to make um, samples available per download. 
so that someone can, you know, download a sample of the book and have a look. It's sort of the equivalent of being in an, an old timey paper bookstore and like taking something yeah, off the shelf and through. having to flick through. Um, and the last thing is that um, we have our hundred uh, percent happiness guarantee, which means that with a couple of clicks, people can get a refund within 45 days of purchase. Um, not everyone knows about that um, when they come to Lean Pub and when they buy a book, um, but people who do know um, do understand that like, you know, buying the book is actually risk-free. And so they might be more likely to um, just, you know, buy a book, without without a recommendation because they know that it's it's risk-free um, but reviews are definitely something that we that we need to add yeah i mean other than that the only thing that i can really think of is the maybe more possibilities for extending the the markdown output but that's really niche really because i don't think most people will be making an online version of the book like the book's enough and so that's certainly not something i um worry too much about because like I say, I think I've put that at the bottom of the stack if I was on the other end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's something, yeah, well, and it, and it sort of is, um, uh, in a way for us as well. And there's, there's a bit of a theoretical reason around that as well, around the sort of concept of lean publishing, which is that, you know, 99% of one's work as a writer ought to be going into writing. Um, and, uh, especially when, before a book is finished and, um, formatting is kind of, it is is sort of like i guess literally an after ought to be an afterthought because if you're doing too much formatting while you're writing what you're probably doing is procrastinating um uh but that being said of course we want to have an awesome online uh reading experience and we want our books to look really good so it is something we we when when authors come to us with a suggestion for something to add it's something we think seriously about um but by and large, I've got to say, I'm not just saying it because I'm, I'm on the podcast, but it, it's just been incredible. Like, I would certainly, anybody listening who's, who's thinking about doing on the Pub, I would encourage them to do so. There's, there's very, very, very little um, negative I could say about the whole experience. Well, thanks. Thanks very much for that. We really appreciate it. Um, uh, actually, I have one, one last, last question, which is um, you have an awesome book cover. Um, how did you uh, get that? Funnily enough, the boss I, I mentioned earlier, um, he designed it for me. Oh, and so um, he's just one of these irritating people that can do everything really well. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, when I sort of said I was going to do this self-published book and all the rest of it, I didn't know what to do for a cover. Um, we, we had a couple of iterations of it. The, the first one he did had sort of, um, it was like isobars, um, you know, like, a, like you would look at a map and see isobars sort of hinting towards that idea of sort of terrain and, to, um, topology and stuff like that but ultimately we sort of felt that was maybe a bit of a vague <coughs> um, notion you know and people wouldn't understand it and think it was just squiggly lines and so the new one with sort of the landscape um, hopefully sort of attest to the sort of notion of you want to be you know writing your CSS code that's going to last as long as the hills which obviously not quite but hopefully you get the notion. Yeah, well, it's a great idea for a cover, and it just looks awesome. Um, so thanks, thanks to your boss as well for me, I suppose. Um, well, uh, any, uh, just to wrap up, uh, Ben, thanks very much for being on the Lean Pub podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. Not at all. Thanks for having me, and thanks for making such a great product. Thanks.